Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast to hell and back. Hello, hello. Uh, episode number 102, just to keep you posted because we just finished 100 a couple weeks ago. And uh, it's good to have any of you here. And, uh, and, and I think you know the nature of the podcast is really to try to delve into the adversities that people face in their lives, this sort of hell on earth that we go through, whether it's for a day or a year or for years and years, all different kinds, and to try to discover and, and model and figure out ways that people survive hell and ways that people climb out of hell, all of which was originally modeled and discussed by Marsha Linehan when she developed DBT. So um, let me start here. In, on, on May or, or September 20th, 2017, was Hurricane Maria that devastated the island of Puerto Rico. And uh, during that night, our guest of today, Natalia Garcia, uh, who came from Puerto Rico and had family there, but who by that point was living as a graduate student in psychology in Seattle at University of Washington, was worried through the night about her family and whether anybody was really gonna be lost or, or have a lot of destruction. And it so happened that that didn't happen to her family members there. But in the morning when she and her husband uh, went in to wake up her two-year-old son, who had recently just turned two and had a two-year-old birthday. And uh, it was already unusual that he wasn't up waking them up. Uh, so they went in to wake him up and he had passed away during the night. Uh, and it complete surprise. He was not ill. He had had no symptoms, no signs of anything, a completely unexplained death in the middle of the night. And so that's what they were left with. And uh, I won't go back into that now because actually uh, eight months after that or eight and a half months after that, uh, Natalia courageously came on to this podcast uh, to Helen Beck and talked about that experience what it was like uh, in heart-wrenching terms, uh, and then what it was like to try to recover from that. And what did she do to try to recover from that? And what did the people around her do? And how did she interact with her friends and with her usual daily life and with her husband? Uh, this was their only child. And uh, she talked for three episodes, and those episodes, if you wanted to go back and hear that, we're in June of 2018. If you go to my website, charlieswenson.com, uh, they're all archived there. So just go there and you'd have, find three podcasts. And so that was uh, four and a half years ago that I met with Natalia for those three episodes. And now it's four and a half years later and she's a grown up. <laughs> Not that she wasn't a grown-up at the time, but she's no longer a graduate student. She's actually a working human being who's out doing a job, which I'll let her tell you what she's doing. And, uh, and, and, uh, and she's done a lot of things since then. And uh, we have a lot of questions, and Nicole and I, and Natalia herself has a lot to tell about what this long journey of uh, coping with a severe loss so we usually on this podcast, we've talked to other people who just lost somebody or who just got diagnosed with something or they're coping with cancer and its treatments. But we have never sat down with somebody and talked about the long journey uh, of like five years now uh, of having lost a child, an only child, and, and what a profound thing that is. And so it's a different perspective. And I think it's going to be beneficial to everybody that copes with loss because everybody copes with loss. Not everybody copes with the loss of a young child, but there isn't a person listening to this podcast that hasn't been coping with some kind of loss of something or someone that is still staying with you. I mean, I have my own. Uh, we're not gonna waste time by talking about them or anyone else's. Today we're focusing on Natalia. So um, I just wanna, um, so Nicole and I have sort of had some email exchanges with Natalia leading up to this, but we haven't had much of a conversation yet. So this is really it. And it's gonna be a two episode conversation this week. And, and then it will be another one posted a week from now, 
the, a week from when this one's posted. So I want to welcome you, Natalia. I am so touched and pleased that we get a chance to hear an update, a follow-up, and what you've been through and what you've learned and what you have to say to other people about this experience you've had. So thank you, thank you for coming onto the podcast again. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, thank you. And I'm quickly, I'll say just that, you know, when when you recorded those episodes with Charlie, I was, you know, I was I was just a listener, but I was so struck by by your courage, um, by your willingness to to articulate both the, the incredible pain and the the steps that you took to to grapple with that pain. I shared your episodes with with friends of mine that were dealing with with grief in different ways, and it's still something that comes up in conversation. Um, you really have stood out as just a paragon of um, willingness, willingness to be with. Um, with the kind of full breadth of your human experience. And it's just, it's so remarkable. And um, so it's, 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 it's a particular honor to get to be here with you today, having, yeah, having just kind of passively uh, benefited from your wisdom all those years ago. So welcome. Thank you both so much, Charlie and Nicole, for, for all of that. Um, I feel really honored to be invited back to this podcast, and I've been looking forward to having this conversation with both of you today and hopefully a bit more next week. Um, and just to kind of introduce myself to, um, to folks listening, um, I'm Natalia Garcia. I'm 35 years old, a grown-up, according to Charlie. And I, <laughs> um, I live in Seattle, Washington, um, as Charlie said, I, I went to the University of Washington um, for my graduate degree in clinical psychology. I have since, yeah, a lot has happened in five years. Um, I have since graduated from there, um, and um, I'm now a licensed clinical psychologist at the Seattle VA. I'm still in Seattle. And um, and what else should I say? Yeah, a lot has happened um, in the last uh, four and a half years since we spoke, um, actually. Uh, one of the big things that has happened is we've welcomed two more children into our family. Um, so I have a three and a half year old um, Owen and a seven month old Mateo. Um, so happy to, to talk about that and what that all looks like um, after grief to welcome two more children into our family. Um, and uh, I'll share with you that I was actually pregnant with Owen when we did our first conversation four and a half years ago, but I was very recently pregnant. And I'll admit to you, Charlie, I um, was feeling very nauseous and I actually had a trash can next to me <laughs> during our entire conversation. And oh. that was my greatest fear that, that I would get sick in the middle of that recording, but it didn't happen. So wow. Um, but yeah, as a whole Owen other element. With us. Yes, a whole other element. <laughs> um, but no, um, I am so, so honored to be back here today to, to share what the last four and a half years have looked like. And um, I'm happy to give a little bit of a general update. Would that be helpful, Charlie? Yeah, I think so. I just wanna, I just wanna say that this is not a general update, but over the, I got a, a birth announcement when Owen was born. Uh, I think I've gotten Christmas cards in the past and I've gotten notifications of upcoming walks in honor of Jackson uh, in the past. And I've always just been knocked out, usually knocked into tears when I receive your cards or your announcements. I'm just about in tears right now, um, but it, it, it knocks me out um, because you always did them in a way that included Jackson. Yeah. You know, even announcements of new things that were not Jackson. It was like, there's Jackson. You know, and with his name and picture of him, and it was like very touching and moving. As somebody who's raised two boys, um, very much identify with guys unimaginable level of loss to have that happen. So, anyway, I just wanted to, to share that. Uh, it was very touching for me. But I wonder if you could, yeah, give us whatever you consider a general update. I'm sure anything you say is going to be of interest to those of us who've wondered for four and a half years what has happened to you. Yeah, and I think, you know, just kind of generally speaking, you know, like all things considered, um, my husband, Brian, is my husband. My, my husband and I are 
somehow doing pretty okay after all of this is like my general, general update. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're functioning in our lives. That's what I think about. Um, We're both functioning, you know, at work, we're functioning at home, uh, in our relationships uh, with each other. And, And like I said, we've been able to welcome two more children into our family, which of course was you know, brought up all kinds of things. Um, but, uh, you know, one term that I had used in, in our earlier episodes is this idea of like complicated joy. So that right. continues to be something that really resonates for me. So we've experienced all the complicated joy that comes with, um, you know, bringing life back into our home, you know, the, the joy being like that, I call it the pitter patter of, of the home, you know, after Jackson died, it was like the deafening silence was so hard. Um, and so now we have that pitter patter back in that house, that chaos <laughs> that is joyful and exhausting sometimes, but you know, uh, we have that back. We, we have gotten that back. It has not replaced Jackson, but we do have that back. And that has felt, um, extremely healing. Um, and right. Both. And it also comes with the ongoing grief that is part of, you know, completing an incomplete family. So, you know, my, my pregnancy with, Owen, less so with Mateo, but certainly with Owen, um, was joyful, right? A lot of people were so happy for us that we had another baby. Um, and I was too. And it brought up grief. It was not simple anymore. Um, it was complicated. I got a lot of questions. Oh, is this your first baby? How do you answer that? I got that question almost daily towards the end of my pregnancy. Um, Mm. you know, Mm. prepping the nursery, right? We, we, prepped the nursery, which was Jackson's old room, now became Owen's room and the process of, of, of getting that together. That's usually kind of a joyful, fun thing you do with your partner. And, um, you know, that had grief in it. And it's not that it was totally, you know, um, joyful or totally painful. It just has elements of both. Um, our birth doula, I hired a birth doula to welcome Owen. And I specifically found someone who had training as a death doula as well, because I believed that she could understand the magnitude of, of what we were doing. Um, and, and she was incredibly supportive and um, the perfect person. Um, so those are mm-hmm. examples of the complicated joy that I would say characterizes our lives now. Um, but overall, I would say we, we have certainly climbed out of hell, you know, um, in a way that I did not expect was possible. Uh, when we first lost Jackson, I was sure that my life was over. Hard stop. Mm-hmm. And five years ago, I don't think anybody could have shown me a picture of my current life, you know, like whipping up pancakes on Saturday morning with the boys or the, the giggles in the bathtub in the evening. I don't think anyone could have shown me a picture of that five years ago. And I would have believed that it was even remotely possible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would say overall, we're enjoying our lives with Owen and Mateo and Stella, our dog, who's truly been with us through this all. And then also missing Jackson every day. Um, And I will say one thing that um, I have grappled with is it can sometimes, I can sometimes feel guilty for feeling so okay after all of this. Like, shouldn't I still be just like keeled over in pain? Shouldn't my life just be in shambles after this kind of a tragedy? And a lot of people will say things like, I can't imagine, or I would have fallen apart completely. I could never be as resilient as you. And that's all meant as a compliment. And I, t- I try to take that as a compliment, but at the same time, it's kind of like, huh, like what kind of mother is okay after something like this? And um, I've, I've grappled with that. And, and what my husband has always said, which really has helped me with that, is that um, it's not a betrayal to Jackson for us to be okay. Um, if anything, right, like the betrayal would be that the end of his life meant the end of ours, that that would be his legacies, that it destroyed us all forever. Um, so I would say my update is we've climbed out of hell and life is a complicated joy. Wow, that, that the language of complicated joy is so, it is so evocative and it's, it really does speak to holding space um, for all parts of your experience. I wonder if, you know, maybe you could pick a moment in time where we could just zoom in on what it's like for you to be inhabiting that complicated joy to, to what's going on in your mind. What are the thoughts and feelings? Because uh, I think a lot of us, um, certainly me, it's easy to kind of want to push away one or the other. 
and just keep it simple. I want to be feeling good or I'm feeling so bad that I can't access good. So what is it like to be kind of negotiating back and forth? Yeah, that's such a great question. What immediately came to mind for me was actually bringing Mateo home seven months ago um, from the hospital. Um, I will just backtrack slightly and say, you know, the, the big sort of grappling with this was when we when Owen was born. Um, and by the time Mateo came along, I felt like we've we've done this before. We, we know what this complicated joy feels like. But there was this entirely new layer of it, which was witnessing their brotherhood. And I was not fully prepared for how witnessing Owen and Mateo's brotherhood was going to sort of wake me up to something else I lost that I didn't even know I had lost because it was always I lost Jackson. But then I realized I lost Jackson's relationship to his siblings he never got to meet and that Owen and Mateo never got to meet him, although we try to you know keep him alive in many ways in our home. But it was that moment that we brought an example of this is we brought Mateo home from the hospital to Owen. Um, and sometimes those sibling, you know, first meet greets don't go as well, but this one went so beautifully and there was so much joy for me in bringing home the baby and how excited Owen was. Can I hold him? Can I hold him? And he wanted to show him all his toys. And we, we put him on the couch, um, with like a boppy, which is like a pillow around his waist and placed the baby and just seeing Owen just completely fall in love with his little brother, which I know doesn't always happen when you bring a baby home, but it did for us was one of the most joyful memories I have of my entire life. And immediately it was like, and Jackson didn't get to do this. You know, like that was also there. Um, and it's not that it took away from the joy. It just was alongside that joy. And it, I wouldn't describe it as like, it ruins the moment. It's just, it's a complicated thing. Um, and allowing space for all of that to be part of it has been really helpful um, as we navigate this. Thank you. You know, the, you, I'll conjure up for me, and I think this might not feel accurate for you, but a picture of your household of these two boys and being brothers and having these moments and the bathtub and the pancakes and the waking up and the welcoming Mateo home and all of that. And then I think, you know, there's a way in which the way you describe this is like there's a hovering presence of Jackson is there, too. As if I was in your living room and I look over and there's you and there's Brian and there's Mateo, there's Owen. And then I look over on the side and there is Jackson sitting there, but not sitting there. But it's the, sort of like the the, the residual uh, ghost like. Add on. I mean, I don't want to say something that's especially insensitive or something about this, but I can just imagine because even when we lose a dog, and we're very attached to our dogs, for I'd say years with certain dogs, we're sitting in the living room or watching a television or something. I look over to the side, and I it's almost like I know I'm going to see Addie, mm -hmm. who's been gone for years and yet who we love. It's sort of like. You know, so imagining, I'm, I'm just imagining you have, must have so many moments where somehow he's right on your consciousness, right on the edge of these things, yes. making joy complicated yeah. and making everything complicated. Actually. Right, right. Um, I relate so much to what you're saying, Charlie. And, and yeah, I would say for the most part, it's not like he's pulling us away from joy. It's like, you know, just he's part of our family. And that's just kind of the framework we've had for this. Um, it feels hard to think of any other way to, to really think about it. Um, and, and I know we've been really intentional about keeping him alive, so to speak, right in, in our home, like you're saying, Charlie. And, you know, we have like photos throughout the house of Jackson. So, um, you know, Owen has grown up seeing him, you know, as long as he can remember. We talk about him regularly. Um, you know, we celebrate his birthday. Uh, we even made like a little board book, of, you know, board books, like little baby books um, that are resistant to tearing. <laughs> we made a board book of Jackson when Owen was born and now Mateo's um, playing with it more that has like what he liked to eat, like what he liked to play and, and photos of his family and like, oh, I have the same family as you. This is my grandma and grandpa, you know, so, um, We've just tried to find ways that he's just always part of the family. And in some ways, having him sort of ever present in that way has actually been helpful because it's never been like this big, heavy thing that we need to sit down and break the news around. 
Um, I think I used to always kind of fear like, gosh, how are we going to explain this to our future kids? Like, what kind of shock is that going to be? Um, but he's just grown up with this. And it's like many gradual conversations based on his growing age and his understanding. And, and instead of me, you know, I used to worry, like, how am I going to get this right? Like, how am I going to tell him? How am I going to explain it? Um, I focus less now on like making sure I say the right thing and more on just fostering this open dialogue and connection that helps us figure it out over time and just kind of meet him where he's at. Cause death is a tricky concept, even for a three and a half year old. Um, and so we just like want him to know that anytime he wants to talk about it, we're available. He actually told me the other day, he said, it was very sweet. He said, mama Jackson is in the dying place. And I said, Oh, what's the dying place? Cause we, we haven't talked about a dying place. Um, and he said, oh, it's over there behind the mountains. Um, and he told me, you know, he's over there with Jack. Jack is um, my in-law's family dog that actually passed away uh, about a year ago. Um, so he said, he's, he's, Jackson's over there with, with Jack um, and, and the dinosaurs, because he loves dinosaurs, but he knows they're extinct, <laughs> which means that they're dead. <laughs> so I'm not sure where he got this idea, but I just thought it was beautiful. And it's just like his way of processing it at age three. And we'll have more conversations mm -hmm. as we go and we'll we'll unfold it slowly over time. Mm -hmm. That's remarkable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's I'm I'm thinking about uh, as you know, we had a sort of an email exchange with Beth McCrave, uh, who, if people have been listening to the podcast, Beth shared uh, in two podcasts in a row about the suicide death of her son, Ross, at age 24, two, two and a half years ago. And she talked about what that's been like for the last two to two and a half years. And she just uh, showed a level uh, also of kind of like a straightforwardness, a courage, a, a humility, a authentic uh, explanation of what it was like. And, uh, and, and then her other son we spent an hour with, and then her, her, her other son's fiance, who was a close friend of Ross, we spent. And so Beth had, has already connected with Natalia in the past, and now a reconnection around knowing this podcast was coming. And one of the things that Beth wrote that I thought was an interesting question had not occurred to me was, and this would be particularly about Owen being old enough to be in whatever daycare or school or preschool he's in, and, and he's going to encounter other kids. And he has the unusual experience of having a brother who isn't there. And if he talks about that brother and says, no, his brother's in the dying place, or he said, I just wonder if you've had experiences or you've had to help Owen deal with anything, or has there just been a way he's handled this that's been kind of natural so that other kids don't like misunderstand him or give him a hard time? Yeah. And, um, it's, it's, it's that balance, right? Like I want to make sure that we're talking to Owen about it. And I also want to make sure that I'm like preparing him kind of like you're saying for, you know, outside of our household, how do people talk about this? Um, and you know, so far it's just been this incredibly natural thing. Um, and I am not at school with him, so I don't like witness, uh, you know, these interactions yet, but I'm sure as he gets even older there, you know, I'm, I'm going to hopefully be able to support him more in that kind of thing. Um, I have witnessed a couple. So one was when he turned two, um, they do this thing in his Montessori classroom called birthday circle. Um, and um, we went for birthday circle on his birthday and um, we brought the baby along um, because the baby had just been born. And um, actually, no, I was very pregnant. But I was pregnant and we were talking about how Owen was about to have a little brother. That's what it was. And um, the other kids in the class started to say, oh, you know, the preschoolers like, oh, I have a brother. Like, I have a sister. Like, everybody wants, you know, to, to talk about their siblings. And then Owen just kind of like said, well, I have two brothers. And, and in that moment, that really struck me because really physically he had no brothers. Um, he has a dead brother and a brother in utero who he hasn't met yet, but he really clearly had this identity of like, I have two brothers. And he didn't say that in like a sad way or anything, just like, oh, I, I have two brothers. Their names are Jackson and Mateo. 
And, um, you know, we have these Jackson shirts that we wear for our Jackson flower walks that are blue and they have um, a J on it with like a pink flower. And um, the other day, my husband got him dressed for school um, because maybe I wouldn't have put him in that shirt for that reason that I'm not sure what people would say about it. Uh, But when I went to pick him up at the end of the day, I saw he was wearing that shirt to school. And so I asked him, I said, oh, you're wearing you're wearing your Jackson shirt. I said, did anybody ask you about that? He said, yeah, my teachers asked me why I have a J on my shirt. And I was like, oh, and what did you say? And he said, I told them it's my Jackson shirt. <laughs> like, it's just so matter of fact for him, you know? Right, um, right. So, you know, and he'll say things like, my brother died. And that's it. Um, so I, I think for him, it is a very natural thing to talk about. And in our society, it's a very unnatural thing to talk about. Right, so I want to kind of support him as he gets older and how to talk about it with people. I wonder if in our society you find that it's an unnatural thing by this point for you to talk about. Like um, yeah. if you if you bring it up or or do you hesitate to bring it up because it does feel unnatural and what are people going to think or how are they going to respond? I mean, yeah. I know I know stories that you told four and a half years ago about dealing with. Uh, the mothers of the of Jackson's friends mm-hmm. who had been to the birthday party and mothers that you knew very well and how to deal with them. But what's it what's it like by now? Is it complicated for you to know how to talk about him or whether to talk about him? Yeah. So the first thing that comes to mind with that is, you know, um, as you mentioned, Charlie, the Jackson flower walk every year. So I sent out a thing about that. Um, in August, we do it every September because September is his birth anniversary, or sorry, his birth anniversary, his birthday and his death anniversary 10 days later. So September is the month of the flower walk. And as I was crafting that email, I noticed this kind of voice or like this self-conscious part of myself that was like, are we still doing this? And that voice, you know, I, I was surprised I had that voice, you know, because that's not actually how I really think and feel about this. I I, I feel very strongly that I can keep doing Jackson flower walks for the rest of my life and that that's wonderful. And I don't want to have judgments about that. But I think that's kind of like what I've internalized of society. I think before I grieved, before I knew what grief was, I think maybe I had those questions about other people. Like, huh, it's been X number of years. Are we, are we still doing this? You know, so I think that's, that's society's expectation. Um, and so I, I hear that I've internalized that myself. And then I kind of sit with also, you know, my values around this, which is, you know, grief doesn't go away. Um, grief is something that just changes over time. And I kind of want to be a spokesperson or like, you know, PSAs around grief because I think society has it all wrong. Um, we don't move on. We don't go back to normal. We move forward with the new normal. That's, that's kind of my, my mantra around that. And I think it's okay that there's always going to be, you know, you know, the, that empty chair at the table, the, the pause in the conversation, um, and frankly, the hole in my heart. And even if somebody told me, I, I can repair that hole in your heart, I would say, no, um, that is, that, that is, that is my grief. And, and I'm, I'm on some level, you know, attached to that, you know, I still want to function. I still want to move forward, but like, that's, that's where Jackson lives. Right. And, um, and I think mm. now five years later, it's like, there's beautiful things that have grown around the edges of that hole. I'm not trying to paper over the hole, but I'm allowing things to grow out of that. And there are a lot of beautiful things that have grown out of our grief. Um, and that's kind of how I think about it in terms of the passage of time. If you were to go back in time and talk to an earlier version of yourself that that was maybe judging other people and having those thoughts like, okay, are we still talking about this? Like, how might you relate and share with your your younger self in a way? I mean, do you think you would be able to communicate in a way that you then could understand? Um, Or do you think it's something that you really do have to go through in order to connect with? Such a good question. Um, I will say that the people who seem to understand me best are grievers. And in that way, I think it kind of takes knowing this process to understand that it doesn't go away. It just evolves and changes over time. And I'm thinking back to the people who told me that when Jackson first died, 
were reavers. Um, so I think it does take some level of, of having experience with this to fully understand it. I remember once um, hearing that a father who had lost his daughter, he had said, you know, it had been a couple of years or three years or four years. And he said something like, you know, I still think about her every single day. And I thought to myself, okay, well, not like every day, but like, okay, still think about her. You know, like, I didn't really understand and now I get it. And it's not that every day he's sitting in a closet, like unable to function, but it's that she crosses his mind every day. Jackson crosses my mind every day. Um, and I, I don't know that I would have understood that. Um, but I also hadn't grieved before. I mean, I had grieved some deaths, but nothing quite like this. I think you must have seen one of these emails from Beth when we were exchanging in the past week. Uh, saying that people, now that she is carrying her grief with her, and it's, I, th I think she would probably relate to the way you're talking about this, um, that um, she said people would be a, probably really surprised to hear how many times a day she thinks of her son. But just just over and over again, just here, and, and I know it because I know her pretty well, and I know there were, you know, almost nowhere did her son not touch. I mean... Yeah their yard, the woods, the mountain near them, the climbing, particular television show, a particular book, a particular conversation, a particular, it's sort of like he was everywhere. Just as I assume in a certain way, Jackson was everywhere. I mean, it wasn't 24 years like it was for Beth, but it was like two years and already, if I remember raising a two-year-old, but they're everywhere. <laughs> it's like, so you, you can't really go somewhere without being reminded. I'm remembering, Natalia, that, that, that eight months later, when you talked on that podcast, you talked about the, um, that when you would drive to work, you would pass where you used to drop him off at daycare and how that was a, how you had to deal with that. You either had to decide I'm going to take a different route to daycare or I'm going to go right past there and I'm going to be thinking of him when I go by there. And I think you deliberately chose as you did some other things like that to go ahead and not avoid it. Um, yeah. I, I wonder if you could say now, because I think that was such an important thing, but that was eight months of that. Has that been a theme that has affected your life? Um, is this one of the flowers that's grown around the hole in your heart is that you've learned not to avoid certain things or did, did that go on in you? Did that continue to develop? Absolutely. I mean, that's been my mantra in this recovery is, is the approach lifestyle, because I think early on, like you say, Charlie, it's so true. Like he was everywhere, but in a way that was like haunting, right? Everywhere I looked was a trauma trigger, um, something that I felt I couldn't handle. And it wasn't just all the places he had been and touched and, and that reminded me of him. It was even things like the elementary school down our down our street that he never got to go to so he never even had been there but he was supposed to go there you know like everything was a reminder of things he had had done or never got to do and mm -hmm. everywhere i looked there was those those triggers or those cues mm -hmm. and the process of like that like exposing myself to those in this intentional way helped me reclaim those cues back so if before you know, driving by his daycare was a source of just like, literally like just gut-wrenching pain. Now I'll actually bring it back to the birth of my two children. I have to drive by there to get to UW hospital where both times I was in labor. And as we passed that intersection, I was like, Hey buddy, you know, and, and what used to be such a painful intersection is now a touchstone. So that approach lifestyle helps turn trauma cues into touchstones. And that's the benefit of doing the hard work that is exposure. I'm curious, was there that kind of alchemy by, you know, really kind of entering into the tender spots or, you know, the, the pain points directly um, rather than avoiding and then really like you said, reclaiming those relationships with spaces, with thoughts, with ways of being, um, reclaiming them as your own. Is that something, because I think people can go their entire lives and never experience that or, or always want it, but just be so afraid. Do you think there was something 
innate in you that allowed you to do that? Did you, you know, were there earlier experiences that fortified you? Because it's pretty remarkable. I'd love to, to have a little bit of that. You know, I think this, you know, goes back to something we, we talked a little bit about, um, the ways in which I have felt very privileged in my grief. Um, and one of the ways in which I have felt very privileged in my grief is the education and training that I have because approaching trauma cues is extremely counterintuitive. Why on earth would we do that? Right? It is painful. Um, and I can't tell you the number of people that I've worked with just in, in my clinical work yeah. who will describe to me their pervasive avoidance patterns as self-care. And so I, I say this because I think what really helped me do this and then kind of like blindly trust the exposure principles is that I have seen them work as a therapist when I do prolonged mm. exposure with a patient who's experienced PTSD or experienced trauma and has subsequently developed PTSD. I've seen people, I've seen the power of exposure firsthand from the seat of the therapist. And then when this happened, it was like, wow. I'm going to have to be as brave as my patients now. Amazing. Yeah. I'm curious just to follow up on that. If, if now from what you've experienced and how you've really, I think, fostered that courage in yourself and, and created a lifestyle out of it, if you could, you know, maybe take, is there a seed of wisdom that you could offer clients that are struggling, um, you know, maybe that maybe haven't made it over to the other side. Is there something you've learned from really kind of adapting that so wholeheartedly? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, what actually comes to mind. So, so yes, teaching like approach lifestyle, teaching, you know, the rationale behind why to do exposure um, is, is a big part of what I do. And I think it really comes down to radical acceptance. I don't think we can do much until we have radically accepted a very, very painful thing. And that is sort of the starting point there. And so I think um, people are not always aware how much they are not accepting a situation. Um, and it takes really talking about radical acceptance for that to click and to get the, the buy-in and the motivation to, to accept and, and, and to explain what's in it for them to radically accept. Now we can start to do the healing around this, right? But uh, when people are early on in, in grief or trauma or, or some sort of significant destabilizing event, I think it's, it's really just... Um, the initial steps of radical acceptance of coming to terms is like saying it out loud, right? For me, it was like Jackson died and saying that over and over Jackson died. And even if I didn't fully believe it, I think actually Beth McCrave talked about this a little bit, like hearing yourself saying those words to other people and being like, Oh, I'm going to call you next week and correct that memo. <laughs> um, but just saying the words Jackson died. And then next it was like the very specific behaviors of a person who has radically accepted, even if I'm not there yet. Um, so the specific behaviors of somebody who's in radical acceptance are things like removing the car seat from the car. That was a big one. Um, planning the service, um, picking out the urn. Beth also talked about that one. And even if you're not fully, fully radically accepting yet, it's kind of that like fake it till you make it do the behaviors of somebody who has accepted. But ultimately, what I needed was radical acceptance and that did not happen overnight. And so I try to talk to people about how that is a process. I think sometimes we talk about radical acceptance as like flipping on a light switch, um, but it's not been that way for me. And I fall sometimes out of acceptance and it's turning the mind back to acceptance. And um, the main thing has been catching myself in the shoulds and the what ifs. And that's the big thing that's changed for me over the course of the last five years. I used to get really stuck in those rabbit holes. Um, and now I have learned to see those rabbit holes, right? The, the, the what ifs, right? Like, what if I had taken him to the ER that night? Which would have been silly because he didn't even have a fever. <laughs> he was like 99.5. I mean, just 
who would have done that? But I thought, what if I had taken him to the ER? I thought, um, what if I, what if we hadn't moved into this new house? We've just moved into a new house two weeks before. What if we were still at our townhouse? Would it have happened? I don't know. Um, you know, uh, what if I had kept him home from school that day? What if I had checked on him in the middle of the night? And I would just, just spend so much time in those rabbit holes. And eventually I had to recognize that those rabbit holes, like nothing productive happens there. Nothing helpful lives there. And it's a very natural thing to do, but it's very unhelpful. And it's basically the mind's way of trying to undo the trauma somehow. It's like, how could this have gone differently? Finding that secret trap drawer where then it doesn't happen and I can have my son back. And we don't realize we're doing that when we're in a rabbit hole, that that's actually why we're doing that, but it is. And so I've learned to step out of the rabbit hole once I find myself in it or kind of poking around the entrance. And I'm like, oh, that's that rabbit hole. I've been there. Nothing helpful lives there. Um, and, and that awareness and that mindfulness of when I'm stepping in and, and, and gently stepping back out. And I think that's what I try to impart when I work with folks in expectations around what radical acceptance looks like and, and how exposure fits in with that. Natalia, what, what, would it be stepping in a rabbit hole of the kind you're talking about to be asking yourself over and over again, why did this happen? Mm -hmm. Is that thought itself, do you think, kind of an avoidance or kind of like being stuck? Yes. Because some people that I've worked with get stuck and they'll say, and, and they might say about sexual abuse right. when they were a child, why did he do that? How could he have done that? Mm -hmm. And go back and go over and over that. Why, why did he do it? How could he have done it? What kind of person would do that? It doesn't make sense to me. And it seems to me there's a certain point where it's understandable somebody first asks those questions. Yes. Yes. But after a while, it's, a, it's you know, another version of a rabbit hole. Like, like it's, a, it's an understandable question to ask, but I found myself saying sometimes to patients, you know, I can understand you asking that and you keep asking that, but actually there's no answer. Right. And there won't be an answer. Right. And by continuing to ask an unanswerable question, that's there, and there's not going to be new data. Right. And so you're kind of keeping yourself stuck. That that doesn't mean they can get out of there, but just to name it. Right. As that I wonder, does that make sense to you? If you if you kept saying to yourself, "Why did this happen?" or "How did this?" Because I know that you're aware of research going on. Yeah. And maybe you could say something about uh, what this was that he had and what kind of work goes on about that because right. people might be listening thinking a two-year-old two i know i've heard of sudden infant death syndrome but isn't that younger babies right and so um absolutely so we don't know why jackson died still after all this time and so technically so it's called sudc sudden unexplained death in childhood like you said, Charlie, it's kind of like SIDS, but SIDS is for babies who are zero to 12 months old. So anything from age one to 18 is SUDC. And it's when there's no explanation of the death after a thorough investigation, including autopsy. So after autopsy, we sign up for various studies through the SUDC Foundation, who has been fantastic in supporting us through this. Um, they actually have a study where they got blood work from me, blood work from Brian. They looked at our genetics. They, they, they looked at blood samples of Jackson's and they were not able to find any cause of death. And so SUDC is not a thing people die from. It's, um, a diagnosis of exclusion. So what it means is that we, it's a category of death. And so it's not an explanation. It's just, here's the people we don't know why they died. Mm -hmm. And um, to your point, Charlie, when there's like an unanswerable question, that's our experience to a T, you know, sometimes people have events where there's an explanation. Ours doesn't even have one. And so yes, getting stuck in like, why did this happen? I've asked myself that 17 million times. And I think it's perfectly normal to ask ourselves that question. And then at a certain point, it's like, okay, how many times have I asked this question? How helpful, <laughs> what, what, have I, what have I arrived at by asking myself this question? And, and labeling, like you say, as, as rumination, as avoidance, as a stuck place, uh, as a rabbit hole. Um, and, you know, just, there's truly nothing that we could have done differently or known to have done differently. So dropping it. And even when there is something that people find out, right? Like I have an SUDC mom friend who after she did all those studies, they found a cause of death for their child. Um, and for that child, it was um, myocarditis, um, inflammation of the heart. 
And so they were able to find a reason. But even when there's a reason, like, what could you have done differently? Like, what on earth could you have known about that? Right. And it's this like futile exercise because it's just hindsight bias and, and it cannot be undone. And so, you know, I go back to, you know, DBT with this, right? It's the difference between pain and suffering. It's like dropping the rope, letting go of that tug of war, struggle against reality that it shouldn't have happened. Like, well, it did happen. And I'm left with the pain, but I let go of the suffering when I drop the rope. And that's a hard thing to do. And I've had to do it many times, but I, I don't find myself in the rabbit holes as much anymore. What's so interesting is, you know, you've managed to really keep Jackson so much alive in your life, so present and with you, part of your celebrations, you've honored his memory. Um, And I think without radical acceptance that, you know, the way you described it, the actions of maybe, you know, keeping his pictures all around your house and discussing him with your boys and all of those things could be maybe seen or understood as resisting or denial or whatever. But because you came so quickly and so fully and went all the way into radical acceptance and you, you really did allow that process to fully unfold it's like you are able to have to do those, maybe those same things that you would have done in resistance in a very different way with a completely different quality of being. And, um, and I, I just think that's it's a really, really interesting. Do you know other people? Have you encountered other people that have experienced this kind of grief? Um, with young children that have, that have also managed it to engage in this kind of relationship um, over time? Yeah, um, it's a great question. And yes, I've actually met a lot of bereaved parents over the last five years. Some of them um, have experienced similar losses, you know, SUDC, um, others, different kinds of, of losses. But, you know, through our network, when somebody's kid dies, it's like, Gotta call Natalia. You know, so I've I've met a lot of families, and I think you know I've I've seen lots of different ways that this can go. Um, It's always so hard to say exactly, but I, you know, without judging anyone's process, I do see other families sometimes get really stuck in non-acceptance, and in fact, I think it's harder for them to have. It, it works out one of two ways. It's either harder for them to have those cues around because it's a cue for like this, like shock and bewilderment that hasn't been processed. Um, or it's kind of what you're saying, I think, which is this like intense longing, intense attachment to like, I've got to be looking at his photo all day. Here's a shrine. And, and, and like every day we eat dinner and there's pictures of him all over the table. You know, it can go that way too. Um, and, and it is, again, it's hard to say, you know, what is, or the memory gets pushed away altogether. Right. And, and it's hard to say like for any given family, like, you know, what's, what's affected. I think that's for each person to decide what works for them, but I have seen across that spectrum. And I think for us, like, I can, I can say really confidently that like, I accept that he died and I, again, like, and, and then that brings up like what kind of mom am I that I accept that my son died? But no, it's, it's not that, again, acceptance is not liking or approving or right. wanting. It's this happened. And, and I, I know I'm making it sound really simple, but it's been a mm-hmm. lot of going down the rabbit hole, nothing helpful lives there, going down the rabbit hole, nothing helpful lives there. And at this point, um, I don't go there anymore. I mean, on, yeah. on sensitive days, maybe like on a death anniversary, it kind of feels, kind of comes back. In fact, Puerto Rico had another hurricane on the anniversary of Jackson's death, literally within 24 hours of that. It was extremely eerie. Um, it felt a little bit like I was reliving it. Um, there are times when I, I kind of fall back in, but for the most part, um, I just, I, I don't feel pulled to go there anymore. What about your husband? Yeah. Does My, he, does, what's, what's his process like about things like this? 
you know, um, it's a good question. Uh, we're, we're really on the same page about this. And um, I know Beth had asked me, you know, you know, has he learned skills, DBT skills through osmosis? <laughs> um, and I think he has, you know. Um, in fact, he, you know, I want to say a few months after Jackson died, um, he described to me, so he was the one that did CPR on Jackson. Oh. He was unresponsive. I did not have to do that. So he had some very intense sensory memories that were very hard to shake and would show up as kind of flashbacks for him. Um, and he told me sort of after the fact that, he, you know, he would go on runs often uh, at this time. And one of the times he came back and he said, you know, I went on, a, I went on a, a run or a walk in the woods and I sat down and I just replayed every detail I could remember. And I said it out loud and then I did it again. And, you know, it, in some ways that's kind of like exposure therapy. Usually we do that over the course of several weeks, but just one dose of that. And he said it really helped. And he never would have thought to have done that, except that he knows the work I do and that I've said that that helps patients still dealing with flashbacks. And, um, and he, and he felt he had to do that alone. And he didn't tell me he was going to do that, but he did that. Um, and, you know, we went to grief counseling together and, um, we've been alongside each other through this in a way that we, we talk really openly about the skills. I mean, he really, <laughs> he's used the tip scale on election nights. <laughs> he, you know, he, he knows DBT skills. Um, and, and, and I think that that's ultimately back to your question, Charlie, like, what do we have to offer people who may not have the same resources or privileges that, that we have. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm so privileged in grief, you know, my training, like I said, um, we're, we're generally like stable people, um, lots of positive social support. Um, but the one thing really has been these skills. And that is why I'm so passionate about teaching the skills. Um, because I think that they are accessible and I think that we can offer those to people no matter what their life looks like. Um, yeah. And that's what I mostly credit with our recovery. Yeah. I'm thinking of a woman that I treated at one point that, and, and I've shared this at some point on some podcast. Now there's been too many podcasts. I can't remember <laughs> what I've shared where because they overlap with trainings I do and stuff. But it's like this woman came to see me because her son had passed away. He had died, not of suicide, but in a tragic accident. He was only 20 or 21 years old. And and it was two years later. And when I asked her to tell me what her day was like, she said, well, I get up. And I, she seemed very cheerful. And, uh, I, and, I, and I head for the kitchen after I get ready. And, uh, and I stop by at so-and-so's room. And I open the door. And I say, good morning, honey. I said, and, and, and do you hear anything back? She said, no, but you never know. And then she closed the door and she said, and then I go make breakfast. I said, do you include him at breakfast? So, oh, yeah. Oh, he always, there's always a place at the table. You just never know. So she had, and she was living her life that way. And she was getting increasingly depressed and hopeless about life. And yet she wasn't directly connecting these things. And so um, I guess I want to ask you as somebody who's been in a, a not that exact trench, but can imagine, like, what if you imagined that that was your way, that you're going back to Jackson's room and saying good morning, or you're leaving the car seat in, or like, what would you say to somebody like that? Uh, what would you say? You know, I would first really like assess, like, you know, kind of back to your question, Nicole, like, is this something that is effective for this person? Because I definitely early on would say good night to Jackson's urn, like every night, just, you know, kiss on the urn and good night, buddy. Um, I don't do that anymore. And I can't even remember when I stopped doing it. It probably kind of phased out. Um, but I don't think of that as like an ineffective thing to do. Like, I think that that could work for people and at different stages of grief, that probably makes more sense, you know? Um, but if I felt like, so if the person's like not functioning in their lives, I keep coming back to the idea of like functioning, like, are they functioning in relationships and their goals, right? For some people that has to do with work or school or self-care, whatever that is, like, 
are they also doing the activities of living? And in, in the research, they, they talk about the dual process model of grief. And this has been a very helpful concept for me, right? There's like the, um, re the what's it called? Um, kind of the, I'm now blanking on the term, but it's kind of the um, reflective kind of processes where, where you think back on the loss, you know, being in touch with the emotions around the loss. And then there's the, the restorative side, which is, you know, the activities of living, like engaging in the relationships that you still have in the flesh, um, doing the things that are needed of you. Maybe you have a new identity or a new role, whatever that looks like. And the idea in the dual process model of grief is that neither is pathological. There's a natural oscillation between these. And the goal is to just kind of become a little more intentional about that. So there might be times where avoidance makes perfect sense. If I'm about to give a big presentation and someone says, hey, like, tell me about that time, Jackson. I don't I can't think about that right now. I, that's not helpful to me, right? Um, so there are going to be times when avoidance or, 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 or reflecting, you know, makes sense. And then there's going to be times when diving into the new roles and responsibilities, identities, relationships makes sense. And, and, and figuring out what the effective path is, is oscillating between the two. Neither are good or bad. A very good answer, and and, and it, it connects with another person we've recently. I don't know if you, you may not have listened to this podcast, but there were I did some podcasts, or we did podcasts, or did just I, I think maybe with Andrea Gold. That was just you, yeah. Uh, it was just me, and but dealing with uh, di being diagnosed with cancer right as uh, she was saying goodbye to her mentor Seth Axelrod, who died of cancer, and so she talks about the importance of suffering getting into suffering and allow yourself to suffer and allow yourself to cry and having people around you not shut that down yes. and and really being owning owning the privilege of suffering or the need to suffer or yes. the the mechanic mechanics of suffering, the whole thing like do that don't avoid that and and at the same time and even on the same day because she also has young children like you um take them to the zoo yes and and notice the smiles on their faces and how much fun it is and let yourself take joy mm -hmm. on the same day that you've been deep diving into being worried about your life and, and the suffering you go through. It's sort of, I'm getting the same idea from you that it's a, it's like a dual processing model of dealing with cancer. Right. Um, there it's like, yes, let yourself cry, let yourself feel it, let yourself express it. Uh, be careful not to have people shut you down when you're talking about that or to stigmatize you or invalidate you. And then at the same time, make sure that you do things that bring you some sort of sense of meaning or purpose or joy, exactly. you know, over and over. And that sometimes has to be done deliberately because some, for some, some people, the tendency when you're in these situations is, no, I'm sorry. Joy is out the window. No, I'm sorry. No, I'm not going to go do things that I know all my life have made me feel better. I'm just not going to do that. And then yeah, you get like stuck. We've, yeah, like we've, we, we've spoken about with Beth and, um, you know, the self-judgment or this idea of expectations of, you know, when, when you're allowed to feel better or when you're allowed to grieve and, and when you're supposed to feel better or what's normal. So, you know, you're talking about, you know, not being pathological in either direction, but I'm curious about, you know, how you manage to, be in a an open non-judgmental space with yourself and really modulated where am i at right now where do i need to, because we can't you know we, just, we don't love to control whether or not people give us the space that we need but sometimes that's not possible um and the hardest thing can be really just giving ourselves the permission to to feel how we feel whether or not it's appropriate or convenient or any of those things and, and I think that what you're saying, having that space to kind of go back and forth or Charlie, like you said, to, to really go into the depths of, of pain and then to, you know, take your kids to the, the zoo kind of depends on the ability to allow yourself to really go there rather than, you know, prematurely pull yourself back and tell yourself to get it together because, you know, it's not okay. So I'm just really curious how you really allowed yourself to, to just, be where you were as you were there, and then include um, the ebbs and flows as that naturally evolved. Yeah, um, 
my mind is going so many places with this question. It's a very good one. Um, I, I think I'm just going to come back to kind of dialectics too, where um, it's so important to to be with what is coming up for you. And there's some importance in structuring activities so you don't fall into the depths of despair. Like I think like we're kind of highlighting both of these things are important. And, um, you know, um, just because recently we had the death anniversary just last month, um, I was feeling, you know, you would think as a mother who lost their son, there's nothing more I'd want to do on the anniversary of my child's death than to just hold my babies close. And what I was really longing for and needing was a little bit of space away from my children to sit on the couch and listen to music um, that reminds me of my son and just cry and be and have the space, like have the permission to just feel those feelings. So I asked my mom to take the kids and Brian and I sat on the couch and, and, and we gave ourselves an opportunity to cry. And I love a good cry. I know that sounds wild, but to me, that is so, so helpful, but I'm not forcing myself to cry. It's just giving myself space to feel those feelings that is difficult when I'm changing diapers and grabbing food. And, you know, it, it, it kind of is like a, a mood kill <laughs> to be doing the parenting activities when I just kind of want to sit with those feelings. And so I asked for protected space to sit down and listen to music and just be. And what I expected would happen is what happened, which is that I cried. I didn't force myself to cry, but that is what happened. And that felt really good. And I also knew that I wanted to not sit on the couch and cry all day that day. And so we did the equivalent of going to the zoo. It's actually funny you say the zoo. That's often a thing we do because we have a zoo tile in memory of Jackson at the zoo. And we often visit that. On this particular day, it wasn't the zoo, but we did um, kindness acts, which is part of Jackson's ongoing kindness project. One of our kind of meaning making roses that grows around the hole, right? That we were talking about before. And what we did was something kind of age appropriate for Owen that he expressed interest in we found some of Jackson's old baby books and toddler books, and we picked out I mean, there's so many books and, and we picked out, you know, like 20 of them or so that we were willing to part with. Um, and we taped little Jackson kindness cards to them and went around the neighborhood. And, you know, those like free libraries that people have outside their homes, like little yeah. book libraries. Um, and, and we found a route and we hit up like, I think seven or eight of them. And we like dropped off the books and only opened them and put them in. So we, we, came up with something to do other than cry that day um, that was meaningful, like to your point, Nicole, like something that has meaning. Um, and that felt also so soothing. Like I, I got so much out of both of those activities. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I try to approach my grief with that kind of balance. And it's not clear cut, like you need 40% of this and 60% of that. I mean, again, each to their, each to their own, but I, I, I check in with myself, like trying to find what that balance feels like. And sometimes it involves meeting myself where I am. And sometimes it involves pushing myself to do a structured activity. And I think both can be helpful. This might be like a really banal question, but I, I think it might be helpful for, for listeners as you're talking about checking in with yourself and really, it sounds like you're very, very in tune with what you need and when you need it. And, you know, what is it like in the moment um, or, you know, can you articulate or illustrate what that tuning in process is for you? Um, how do you kind of sense into, okay, this is, this is a space from my kids cry on the couch moment versus, all right, you know, I, I really want to make sure I've got some structure in place here. Like how are you in conversation with yourself in a way that, you know, allows that to be a lifestyle and how, you know, did, did, were you always there? Did you get there? Yeah. Thank you for asking that. It's actually causing me to reflect a little bit on this. And I hadn't really thought about it before when Jackson first died, I did not trust my wise mind. I was completely thrown. And I remember conversations with, um, my supervisors, um, Catherine Patrick and Sherry Manning at the time, uh, also Melanie Harned, um, talking to them, like, what, what am I supposed to do? And, and the specific question was like coming back to work and seeing patients. And I was like, how do I know when I'm ready to do that? And they were like, I think you're going to know. I was like, but I don't know. And, and I, I, I looked externally a lot 
when Jackson died, I went to PubMed to find out how long grief lasts. <laughs> That's how silly that, you know, I, I was so not confident in my ability to, to do this. And I looked to other people, to, to, to the literature, to the experts, to tell me how long was this terrible thing going to last? And what am I supposed to do to get through it? And I think in answer to your question, you know, it's been five years and I've developed this attunement to my wise mind that I always had, but didn't quite trust or, or listen to or know how to access. Um, and, and yeah, I guess I don't have like a better answer to that, but I, I've, I've had a lot of experiences that have helped me develop that confidence in what I need and I didn't have it right away. That's that's really helpful. Well, Thank you for sharing that's really that. That's really helpful. Very interesting. Wow, Natalia and Nicole, we're going to stop. Um, oh, and oh. we're and I know you may let go, <laughs> radically accept the end <laughs> of the podcast. You know, this there's different levels of grief. You know, and <laughs> I'm, I, too true. This brings up this brings up so much about grief that beyond <laughs> this particular version of grief, I'm. I was just sitting here grieving certain ages that my children went through mm. and what it was like at those ages. And because it's never that way again, yeah. and it keeps changing, it keeps changing. So I was realizing, yeah, I'm learning things, having you talk just about, okay, oh, okay, I'm going to have to radically accept some of these things, let some of these things go, realize there are cues for this and et cetera, et cetera. So um, I'm hoping that other people listening are taking away this, this is not just sort of like, isn't this an, a sort of a, an amazing curiosity that what Natalia did? It's not that. It's like this is a human process that people grieve as part of recovering from traumatic experiences in life and, and grief. And so there's just it's just very helpful. So we're going to go on into it more. And uh, next week, we're going to do another podcast. Um, and... Um, Gosh, I'm, I, I really, I just want to ask, as I always do at the end of these podcasts, it would be great to get any feedback that can be done through comments wherever you listen to this podcast. It can be done through going to my website and writing me an email. I get some that way. And any other way you can get to me or Nicole and, and give us input um, about this, including other questions you have about it and what it brings up for you. And, uh, you know, and if you're in a location where you can rate and review the podcast, that always helps. It's uh, the way other people find the podcast. So it actually, it's really, really important. And, oh, and if you subscribe, it also, you'll, you'll be sure that you get next week's episode as well. Right. But the mm -hmm. yeah, rating and review, it's really, really important. It helps us a lot. So thanks, Natalia. Thanks, Nicole. That's good Charlie, to thanks uh, have this conversation. We'll continue it next week. Thank you both. See you okay. then. Bye. Bye. Bye.